Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, along with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey there. And we have a very, very interesting program today on our episode of Cinema Around the Corner. We're going to explore, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the first of the Godfather films, we're going to look at the trilogy of those three films, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and... Godfather 3, or known by uh, Francis Ford Coppola as the coda death of Michael Corleone. Exactly. So uh, we're going to start off by opening up a little bit about the history of the Godfather films. And we're going to let Don, who is a film professor, go ahead, Don. Well, I mean, the history of the Godfather, my goodness, this, this film is like the definitive you know, one of the top films in the history of American cinema. And it's fascinating because original book was really pulp fiction. That's all it was. It was just a, a pulp story about mafia and, you know, and people like to read it because, you know, it's sensational, you know, people are killed and there's all this drama in it. And it was very well written in terms of pulp fiction. So then Paramount said, let's make this film. And it was a huge deal. And everyone was wondering who's going to direct it, who's going to be in it. And so then they made the first Godfather and Coppola got involved to many people's surprise because he was not a veteran director. He had the rain people underneath his belt and, and he'd helped, uh, he re rewrote Patton. And so it was very surprising that he was the director. And then he also, he really fought for how he was going to make it. So Al Pacino, uh, as many people know, is Michael Corleone, the main you know actor in the in the in the piece, and he had to fight for him to be in there. And and everyone's like, can't have him; he's an unknown, etc. Then like two or three movies before that, and so the decisions that were made to create the film are fascinating because it was actually considered to just be really a Hollywood big blockbuster you know story. And little did they know that Coppola and Gordon Willis, who he, this is where he cut his teeth in making a, a you know beautiful images as a cinematographer. The film, you know, it's 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 fun. It's totally engaging. It's an absolutely incredibly made film in terms of uh, story structure and editing, uh, use of sound. I could go on forever in the use of sound on this and lighting and uh, framing. It's a it's an absolutely gorgeous film. And so that is how the whole Godfather series started. You know, it's interesting you brought up the choice in director, because as I recall, uh, Coppola was this new wave of directors that was coming into Hollywood, right? It was a bit of a risk for Paramount to hand this project over to him, don't you think? Totally. Yep. Huge risk. And who were some of his contemporaries when we think about those directors? Was that like a George Lucas at that point? Was he considered the Steven Spielberg? The, you know, were those Spielberg was a little bit like a two or three years later, but it was Lucas and Bogdanovich. And who there's a, the whole crew, all the all these guys that went to UCLA and USC, and they were the new voice of Hollywood. And Hollywood was going through a massive transition because they had always done these huge studio productions with the studio lot, and and they'd done everything in a very you know very large enterprise you know bureaucratic fashion. And it was changing. Easy Rider was made four years before. And there's all, and not just Easy Rider, but that was the, the big one. There were so many other films that were like made with this new voice. 
And I think it was one of the major reasons they got uh, Coppola on board. Do you think Mike Nichols influenced that group and, and Altman? Interesting. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess they're all competing with each other. I mean, graduated. Well, they, they were, weren't they? Altman and Nichols were a little bit older than those guys, right? They definitely were in the same group. They cut their teeth in the in the sixties more, right? Uh, Altman had Mash, and Nichols obviously had the Graduate, and and also Nichols came from you know a theater background. Yeah, and, he, he uh, you know, and he was a well connected guy, and you know, a Coppola, you know, he was coming up through the, you know, he, he did go to school at UCLA just like uh, Lucas did. Um, but was they it UCLA were, or USC? Oh, USC? Is that right? I don't, I don't, the USC had the famous film school. I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm not, you know, it's California. So I'll go with the USC. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's uh, they were changing things. And be, you, didn't, you didn't do this before going to, to be making films in Hollywood. You went through the system. And these guys were doing it in this collegiate fashion, you know, learning their, you know, their, their craft in an academic uh, forum. So... Very different. So, so Godfather, this whole trilogy, this is old ground we're going over. You know, it's interesting. Like I've seen Godfather, I don't know, like 15, 20 times. And it's, it's an amazing film, you know, not just because of the great quotable lines about, you know, leave, uh, leave the gun and take the cannoli and, and all these kinds of great lines. And there are great lines and they're incredibly well delivered and they are iconic for a reason. The, the film is actually incredibly well constructed. It's, it's, it's basically a soap opera. It's a with a lot of killing and it's not really, you know, the the narrative isn't like that advanced in terms of like, you know, we're surprised by things that happen incredibly well constructed. We, we, we follow a story and then we, you know, we see a guy show up the opening scene. There's an undertaker that shows up and he talks about what it means to be living in America. And that's an iconic scene. So the opening sequence is the wedding of, of Connie, you know, the father of the bride cannot re refuse anyone on their wedding day of the daughter. That's one of the big things promoted. So the first guy is the undertaker and he doesn't want to approach uh, Corleone because, you know, he, that means he's being connected somehow to, you know, mob violence or the mob world. But the baker, he comes in later and he obviously has made this crazy cake. They bring the cake in the Connie's wedding and and he and then he says, can you help out uh, Enzo, the boyfriend of his daughter, uh, you know, get citizenship. And but he's already like in he understands who Don Corleone is. So, yeah, I look, I think that film nearly flawless, in my opinion. I mean, it's just like you said, it's so well constructed. It's balanced so well. The the dialogue and the writing, the cinematography, as you said, the music, it just it just flows. The editing it's just superb. I don't know who the editor was, by the way. I will go back and Francis Ford Coppola did go to UCLA's film school. So when so you were on. Yeah, you were right. <laughs> uh, I want to give you credit. Where, so It's so rare. You did, but, so I appreciate it. Yeah. Godfather, nearly flawless in its design and implementation. It's just a well-crafted film. You know, as this is the 50th year, you if you watch it again, it just, it's, you know, I don't, I probably have seen the film a dozen to 20 times and it holds this freshness that just continues for out, just continue forever. I mean, it's just, it's timeless, this film. It just tells a snapshot of a story of of this family and the and the intricacies of being in the Italian success connected to the whole idea of organized crime and, and trying to actually build past that and, and, and the evolution of the family as we see through the Godfather trilogy is this process of of trying to 
come out of this success of organized crime into more of what they consider to be a global legitimacy. And, you know, The Godfather sets that story so well, gives you the opportunity to understand the background and the tensions and the idea of the families involved really made me as a historian, as a history teacher, you know, it's almost, you can almost take that as a as a, a tool for learning, even though it's, you know, it's fictional. And Mario Puzo, the author who you mentioned, uh, wrote the books and collaborated with uh, Francis Ford Coppola on Godfather Part Two and on the, uh, the Godfather Part Three or Coda. They had a, a very good relationship and the way they wrote the, the screenplays, I felt was, um, it just had a natural progression that that worked very well. And they took some risks that we'll talk a little bit more about when we talk about Godfather Part Two. But it, as you said, Godfather, the first film, just such a classic. Well, it, it's interesting, you you know, if you say this word flawless, and I think I think flawless might be thrown out a little bit too much, but I have to agree with you there. I, I don't know a problem with this film. If you just want to watch a good film that's engrossing, that's just fun, without watching, you know, worried about film language and, and you know, it's a great film to watch, but what I've watched this film many times and and there are scenes that are so well constructed and they're not just like with good acting and, and effective dialogue, they're just so beautifully shot. You know, one I will quote it all the time is the is the murder of Polly, uh, who we learn through the story. He's, he's a bodyguard and, and we know that he's sold out to another family and he's the He's the person that's responsible for an attempt on the life of the leader of the family. The, when they kill him, that the scene is so beautifully constructed that they back out of the driveway and Clemenza, the guy that's you know going to kill him or in charge of killing him, says, "Look out for the kids." So we know he's a nice, decent family guy. And then they you know go in town, they do a bunch of errands, and then they come out and they've bought some cannoli and. And they pull over and the shots are absolutely beautiful. When they pull over, it's in this field of-, of I think like it's the New Jersey wetlands. New Jersey wetlands. And right in the background is this tiny little top of the Statue of Liberty. And uh, there's a long shot and they this guy kills Polly. When they leave the car, the, the great line that everyone talks about is, uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli. And it's Yeah, just, which is, by the way, that, that was an improv, you know, that was a, a created- line it wasn't in the script but that was a, yeah. a line that they added at the moment the actor who played uh clemenza i will say some of the things that they recognized as leaving into the film uh, luca brasi was uh, a hitman for a feared hitman for the um corleone family and he uh just a hulking you know physical man and at the beginning you could you the, could play luca brasi in the in the play version of Yes, I, I, I am a hulking, physically intimidating person. That is true. Yeah. At the beginning, in the wedding scene, he's practicing how he's going to speak to the Don in just wanting to say a few words to him because he has so much respect for him. He's not asking for anything, but he's sitting in the corner somewhere outside the offices where the Don is sitting and he's practicing what he's going to say because he, you know, he's not a, a well-spoken man. He's, he's a man of few words. And the reality is, is that when they filmed that, he was actually practicing his line and they used that as the pretext for him practicing what he was going to say to the Don before he went in there. So they, that was actually not an intentional shot. It was a kind of like a side shot that they ended up deciding to use after seeing him actually practice because that guy, Luca Brasi, was not a professional actor or had just done a few small lines. He had actually been in the mafia. This guy had actually been 
uh, an enforcer for, I think, the Colombo family or something. And he was really, you know, he was really connected into that world. And so, you know, he when he was practicing those lines, they were used, they decided to use those shots because it just kind of represented the development of the character very well. May, may your first child be a masculine child. Yes. <laughs> that was a great line. Yeah. There's so many good lines and so many quotes in that film. And as we move forward in the, in this trilogy, we get to Godfather part two, which I thought the classic style of Godfather, you know, being a, a traditional kind of shot film and then the risk that they take in building this kind of connected storyline of of the past and the present in godfather part two was i thought a very big risk for such a successful franchise what did what did you think well i mean godfather two is is fascinating in terms of the politics of making the film because uh when they made it uh coppola said this film should be called godfather part two and paramount fought them we can't do it called we need a new name for the film and he said no that's what it is and so they stuck with it. I think there's a lot of problems with Godfather 2. I'll say definitely that's incredibly in favor of the film is boy, does it intercut incredibly well between the rise of the and then the family being, you know, having left New York and 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 then dealing with rising in, in Vegas. So the rise of Vito Corleone, who was originally played by uh, Marlon Brando, and this film was by De Niro. And then how the family is coping with their new environs in Lake Tahoe or under Vegas. The concept of the story is very well constructed. Godfather Part Two won Best Picture, and Godfather did not. There, in my mind, there is no debating anything related to Godfather in terms of which is the best picture. For me, it's definitely Godfather One. I mean, it was such a originally constructed film. I mean, it was really Pulp Fiction. It seemed like it was you know, incredibly thoughtful and sophisticated and, and and it's so beautifully constructed. The second one, it's kind of just going back and forth between these two storylines, does it very well. I can't argue how well they do it, but it, in my mind, it turns into a bit of a soap opera in the middle of the film. Well, you know, you, you called the first film a soap opera uh, just a few minutes ago in this podcast. Uh, you, so I'm not sure why you would say that the first film, which is essentially a soap opera, but you loved, but the second film you're saying is a soap opera, but you did not love. Well, because they're basically doing what they already did. So they did it and now they're doing it again. And so now I'm leading in to where we're going to eventually get with Godfather Part 3, which everyone had derided. And I don't think there's a huge difference between the, you know, the delivery of 2 and 3, except the construction of the narrative. So in, in 2, it's like a cut back and forth between the beginning and the, you know, the middle of the family, where there's, they don't do that in 3. I don't think there's a huge difference between 3 and 2 in terms of, like, you know, films. Oh. What I liked about part two, Godfather part two, is the deep dive into the development of the characters. I felt that, you know, the Godfather, the first film was such a strong and powerful film uh, and the characters fit into it very, very well. And you saw the evolution of some of those characters. But what we see in Godfather part two is a deep dive into understanding the evolution of those characters and to really peel back the skin and really understand the soul of some of these characters and, and what motivated them and what turned them into what they end up being. And the 
the journey of that experience in Godfather Part Two, in my opinion, actually is a real strength to that film that we don't necessarily see in the first Godfather. But, you know, taking Al Pacino and just putting him into that position of just emulating the Michael Corleone character into such a finite understanding of his motivations and understanding and the way that he was able to be so successful in becoming that person and that character for me that identified that movie for me as a stronger preferred film than the first one for me personally because the character development and and the way you're brought in even with fredo and and the sister and even the younger version with robert de niro and clemenza and uh the other guy who abe vagoda plays but i can't remember his name but he's the younger version of of tessio uh yeah tessio you know, even seeing them and developing into who and knowing who they would be from from watching the film, the previous film, I thought it was brilliantly done. I thought the way it was almost like a sequel and a prequel at the same time and to be and it was done successfully. So they they filled in the backstory, but they continued and evolved the story of, of that family in such a way that I felt that it actually technically was a better constructed film in that sense because of the ability to let the characters truly develop and understand uh, the motivations of all those actions that happened even in the first film and, and through the development of the second film. People are always talking about the three Godfathers and I guess there's slight debate between one and two. I don't know how there can be because I think number one is like, you know, an incredible film and whatever. And two is obviously very good. I'm not disputing the strength of two, but I do disagree that three should be derided so much. I understand all the political reasons that uh, Coppola made it, but I don't see a huge difference between two and three. My basis for that, that opinion is incredible scenes that you think about. And so the first Godfather, there are so many scenes that are just so beautiful and I've watched them again and again. You know, the, the murder and, uh, of Salazzo and McCleskey, it is such a beautifully shot se- sequence. It's so, I've seen it so many times. And, you know, the use of sound when the train goes by and it's mirroring, the, you know, the, the confusion in his head and just all these sequences. And then they do the montage sequence and we see the sequence. You know, a lot of the Godfathers are based on things that happened in history with the mob. The, the sequences, so many sequences with Apollonia, when he, this is when he goes to uh, Italy and he, you know, he's there in hiding because he killed McCluskey. And there's a scene, scene when he's walking with her and, you know, it's their, like their first time together and they look on their own and some sort of like, you know, nice romantic moment. And uh, it turns out there's like a, a dozen people from the family following them. The chaperones. The chaperones. So for me, Godfather, and that's just, I've just named two or three scenes that are like, I just, they're, they're so beautifully done. And I'm, you know, like, I'm amazed at how beautiful, you know, well-structured these sequences are. And I can watch them again and again. And I also could say there's a lot in three. I think there's a lot of really great sequences that are done in three. I know there's problems with three, but uh, I think three has as many really effective sequences as two, but they do not one because there's so many sequences. You're just like this scene and this scene and this scene is like, my God, this, this film is just full of a, a remarkable, you know, moments that you remember and you quote and talk about. 
Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to disagree and, and I'm going to say it's insulting to connect three to two. I don't, I don't, I think it's just a real injustice to even put them in the, as the same level of, of filmmaking. Um, I think the, the script, the, the woven scenes such as, you know, when Fredo is shot, uh, on the lake with the fishing scene. My God, that is such a powerful scene. And, and uh, Michael's is in the lake house, just kind of staring off into the water and, you know, the shot happens and, and it's just, you know, I mean, that was just such a powerful scene. And then in, in uh, the, the stuff that happened in Cuba, uh, very, very well done. The connection between Godfather one and Godfather two, absolutely. I mean, just the, the scene development and it just, the strengths of those two films together are, are just probably the greatest coupling of two films or of sequels that have ever, that's ever been done in my opinion. But then for you to just throw part three into that, as if it was some kind of level of equalness to either one of those films is just, it's just a real insult to the people who are truly blessed with this talent and, and craftsmanship to that made those two films to say that that third film is, you know, it's kind of like saying, well, you know, the New York Yankees uh, are a great team. And, and so are the Toledo Mudhead from, you know, double a minor league ball at some place in Ohio. And Ben, just, you're really throwing it down. Let's throw well, it hey, down. I just want, I just, I think it's important that the, the listeners understand just how, discrediting you are to to the legacy of those first two films by even attempting to connect part three to either one of those films it's just it's just it's insulting okay so here we go i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna mount on that uh, comment andy garcia amazing performance in in three he is stellar and I, it's a shame that he was not in in anything else because he as the bastard son of uh, sunny is a Great character. And I, I agree. Also. I thought he was very good in the film. And so also, I would say Talia Shire as Connie, best of the three films. Her, she is this, and there's a great line that, uh, you know, there's a, a hit that's made, you know, a third of the way through the film. And and he did, and Michael Carlano is trying to get out, so he's not interested in killing people. So Connie, when the hit's made, she says, uh, now they will fear you. And he turns around and he said, I think they should fear you. Talia Shire nails her role and she turns to this, this incredibly powerful matriarch. And she's, I'm not, she's perfectly great in one and two, but one, she's this pathetic person that's just getting beaten up by Carlo all the time. So I don't, we're all like wondering, but we understand the social stuff. And then in two, just hanging out with the drunk rich guys. So yeah, but, then, but in two, no, in two, she commits to her loyalty to her brother at the end of that film, you know, so there's, it's a, you know, once it gets there, there's an evolution. There's yeah, an evolution. there's an evolution of that character that we see the transformation that would lead to, you know, the, the aging of her position as, as, you know, the bachelor sister of, uh, you know, in that sense, because, you know, at that point, Michael's single and she is like his, you know, she's, she's taking that role of taking care of of him within the family. And so, I mean, I think that's a natural progression, but you don't, when you see that is when, when you see the development of her change in part two. And in fact, in my opinion, the disjuncture of the connection of the evolution isn't explained all that well in part three, it's just assumed. And, you know, so her, her, you know, it's, it's hard to understand how Michael would allow her 
within his character's development to have that kind of control at that age. And you don't, you don't have a reasonable explanation. It was just kind of a, it almost felt like a throwaway thing to, to power up her character without having the back story of that fully understood between the gap between part two and part three. See, I, I don't know about that. I mean, it's uh, she's evolved into into a person that's basically the matriarch of the yes, family. We agree, she has evolved, but we don't have an explanation. And why is that needed? I don't know why that's needed. What what is the requirement? I, think, I felt that she had more power than he would have given her based on his character's development. And I well, think it was just I think it was just a weak script that didn't explain well, that. No, so let's okay. Let's also you said that everything's changed to this one. So Gordon Willis, same cinematographer. Mary Puzo, same I, I didn't say everything changed. I never said that. No, but you said it was all like. I said it was a superior. It was an inferior film to the other two. But all the same people are involved, except for and I, I do decry a couple of things. So obviously, everyone talks about uh, Sofia Coppola. I'm not defending her. She's she's a wonderful director, but uh, my goodness, the not solid scenes. There's the incredibly awkward gnocchi scene with her and andy garcia whatever and so i don't know the the history of who was supposed to be in uh this role um originally was supposed to be julia roberts i don't know if that would have really worked in my mind but whatever uh but she had scheduling conflicts and then it was madonna wanted the role and coppola thought she was too old so she was out and then there was a woman i've known a writer no winona Ryder was um the last one it's uh, Rebecca, here we go, I'm, I'm finding it now, Rebecca Schaefer. And her story is crazy. Like, I don't, I don't really, I just read about it, obviously. Right. Um, she, she, was, um, oh, she was murdered. Yeah, had the script and <laughs> she had a stalker and, and he killed her in her house. So that's crazy. Right. That's and then they ended up with Anona Ryder and then last minute she couldn't do it. And so they ended up with uh, Sofia Coppola. So it was a this whole series of crazy things. I don't know what would have been different um, with a much better uh, Mary uh, Coppola. Oh uh, Mary... Would have been she had a major role in that film, and she was a, a, she was a whole, it's problematic. She was a negative not, contribution. I mean, not, there's a I'm, lot of people that would argue that her performance in that was so bad that it crippled the success of that film. I'm not I'm not I'm not even saying that that's what I I'm not saying that that's that was a contributor to the weakness of the film, but I'm not even saying that that is the contributor to the weakness of that film. It it is. And I'm like and and she's incredibly weak, even even her death sequence. I don't think we're I mean, it's not we're not like spoilers in this, Um, even her death sequence when she says daddy and she dies. I mean, like the whole thing is I'm not defending it. And I think that's a very obviously everyone talks about how weak it is. And also, uh, Robert Duvall not being in the film is uh, is a disaster. And George Hamilton is essentially his replacement, and it's it's terrible. And so there, those two, I think, really cripple the film in terms of like how accessible and how engaging it is. Um, but those things accepted. The death scene of Michael at the end of the film is so is such a great mirroring of the death scene of, of Vito Corleone. Um, and Michael, the version I watched, Michael didn't die. What? Well, what? Of course he dies. He dies with a puppy. No, I watched the Coda version. He doesn't die. Uh, version. Coppola re-edited. I don't even know why he re-edited. The, the original edit is great. Well, they say that they he re-edited it to reduce the amount of screen time his daughter has in the film. 
because she was well, so sad. The final scene in, in the original version is of Michael dying alone in some sort of courtyard in Sicily, and there's a puppy running around. And I think it works really well. Yeah, no, that last little part, he's he's in it, but he doesn't die. He's just kind of he's he's um you know. Well, wait a minute. How could, the new, how could the film be called the death of Michael Arcorleone if he doesn't die? Uh, I don't know. He doesn't die in, in that version. Uh, I also want to point out a couple of things. You brought up, you know, Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall wanted real, I mean, he wanted more money than they were willing to pay. And I will tell you that a lot of the problems with this film was, is that Francis Ford Coppola's motivation to do this film was purely money. That's all. He didn't want to make this film. He never had any intention to do this. He had, it was a deal because his production company, Zoetrope, had had so many bombs. They were in debt and they needed a deal to cut out. There was the fact, well, he was going to have another bomb because the Fabulous Baker Boys was also financed as part of this deal as well. But the, it was purely money. That was everything that drove this. They cut a deal that said, you can only spend this much money. It's got to be this many minutes. He agreed to everything because he needed the paycheck and he wanted more. He only got a million dollars for development and direction. He got, and he had a huge, very tight timeline. They gave him uh, less than a year to put this whole thing together from start to finish script writing all the way to shooting and production. Robert Duvall wanted, you know, almost Pacino level money. And they were, they wanted, he, he wanted like 5 million. uh, And that's what Pacino was getting. And they, they offered him like a million. And he's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. And then people criticized him. He said, look, they're making this film because of money. Why can't I have the money that I should get for this film? And so I think that that also was a contributing factor to how poorly this, this film actually was. Because I'll tell you another really disappointing connection in this film was Diane Keaton and Al Pacino in the in the screen time that they shared was there was a complete lack of chemistry it felt like they were just checklisting off the scenes she didn't have just had very little investment in this and i you just didn't feel any of the connection that were in the previous films and that might have been over because of the time that had gone between that their their relationship wasn't particularly great because she they had dated and and he you know kind of dismissed her at some point but the chemistry was so lacking and disappointing in, in their relationship in this film that I found that to be a disappointing distraction in, into it. So, you know, in regards to that level, I, I agree with you 100% that Andy Garcia was phenomenal in this film. Uh, and they did recycle some of the other older characters and brought them back. And I thought they were okay. I mean, it was... It was and nice Eli, Eli Wallach was great too. Yeah, but I will say overall... You know, it just felt like they. it was just a, a cash cow checklist kind of film. And it, to say that you, besides a few individual performances, that you would compare it to the brilliance of the other two films, the, the completeness and the holistically well-balanced craftsmanship of both those prior films, it just shows that, you know, you, you're only looking at this through a very narrow lens. A, a perception of what you think is, is a good film because there are so many weaknesses in this film. And it was clear from the beginning that Coppola wasn't invested in this film like he was in the other two. It was a money thing. Well, money. Money seems to be the, the issue we're talking about. So I, I, will, I will say, okay, so we've already talked about the problems with the film, with the two issues with the, the lacking of <clears throat> when I'm Tom Hagen and, and Sofia Coppola are problematic. So I accept those things, but I don't think I don't think it's fair to criticize the film in terms of like its integrity and how well constructed it is based on its money, because these are not these are not indie projects. 
These are Godfather was one of the one of the one of the first films in Hollywood that did these huge like let's let's put it in 500 theaters to start. And so that was the concept of the film. The film's always been based on mass audience. And so that's what the film is. I mean, you know, you know, I love Planet of the Apes and it's not a well-made film. Uh, obviously Godfather's better, but it's still, you know, a film meant for a mass audience. And so these are mass audience intended films, but I went to it when it came out and I, I thought it was, you know, except for the things we've mentioned, you know, the uh, Sofia Coppola is not an actor and uh, we're missing Tom Hagen. And th those are two incredibly, you know, large gaps, but it's a very well constructed next chapter in this film. And the same cinematographers there, the same writers there, the same directors there, and they're doing the progression of this concept. And so, I, I don't, I don't think the script is better. I don't think the script is even equal to those other two scripts. I think there was a lot of problems that that script wasn't complete, in my opinion. I felt like the transitions. Uh, the storyline, the transitions between the scenes, there was a lot of just what I thought was misplacing confusion within within the buildup of the story, even within they, the part they, three. And, they, and and that had to do with a poorly constructed script that probably didn't get enough time put into it to really develop it to the platform of those other two films. They included really interesting issues regarding the the two papal conspiracies. So the not the one papal conspiracy with the you know, the laundering of money. And uh, so they integrated that in the script, which is a historical thing. So as a history teacher, I, I'm assuming you're in intrigued by that. And then also the death of John Paul I. You know, he was a pope for 33 days. And, you know, whatever. I don't know about the conspiracy theory that he was murdered, but I mean, he was there for 33 days and, and he was considered a very, you know, moral and, you know, straightforward guy. And, and so, and there, there was this issue with the papal bank at the time. And so whatever, I don't know about those issues, but I think it's really interesting that they made the attempt to include those things in the development concept of the other and making, you know, the family legitimate and the way they're doing it, legitimizing themselves is through the papacy. And that, I was, that's, I mean, it's a little bit convoluted. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's totally easy to follow, but I mean, it is there and it's historically, and that's one of the things I love about the Godfather one, it's really founded on things that happened in New York at the time. There's all these shootings and the shootings that happened in the script are shootings that happened, you know, mob hits. They're, they're mob hits that happened in, in real life in New York. But, but and so I really like how they try to do on. that. That doesn't make it a good movie. What made it a good movie was the way the movie was put together. This movie, Godfather Part Three, it had, yes, you're right. It had some historically notable things that were connected to real life and everything. But the actual transition between the scenes and the way it was edited and it just it, it didn't flow as well as the other two films. It didn't the, the sense of the sensibility and development of of actual story connected to these plots that you speak of was subpar compared to the other films. It was, and, and at some point you were just waiting for moments to go by so you could get to, to the, you know, it just wasn't that well-developed and the that, that impacts the level of the film and that there's no, there's no, nothing you can say that that would convince me that that is not the reality of that situation and that you could you keep connecting it to a few little things. Oh, the history, the history of it. that's great, but that's not what you, you know, it's a film. It's not a documentary. Well, the film that stands up that's, that's, that's remarkable of the three is number one. And so 
I, hopefully that's accepted. And I think two, I'm, I'm not, I think two is very well made. And I love to have the intercut between the rise of the family and, and what happens in the family in Vegas, but it's not nearly as strong as number one. And so I think number two and number three are actually well connected because they're oh, derivatives. Oh, I, I just, it's so, it, it, you should, you, you really have, you have to unentrench from this position that three has any right to be. <laughs> I don't think three is that two bad. I don't think it's a bad. I, obviously I can hear that. And it's just disappointing to hear because it is. It is that bad. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, we're never going to we're never going to agree on this. But I think it's important that we both have communicated our points clearly on this. This this tragedy of a misunderstanding that you have created in how you're positioning these films. But these things happen and we we have disagreed on things before and we've agreed on things before. But this is an area where I think it's a real non-negotiable. And and our thousands of, of listeners, you know, I hope that they will come and they'll share with us at our Twitter feed, Cinema Around the Corner C18. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's, let's uh, and let's that. hopefully you'll come on to our Twitter uh, and, and, and tell us how you feel about it, because you know what? It's, it is important to us to, to hear other opinions about this because Don and I are, are not the experts. True. All right. Well, I think we covered this very well. And I hope if you haven't seen the Godfather trilogy that you at least see one and two because they're really good. And, you and know, three. <laughs> so uh, we'll conclude our episode on the Godfather, its 50th year anniversary. And we'll look forward to seeing, uh, listening and speaking to you again on Cinema Around the Corner. See you later.